You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Good morning. We're going to dig right in. I want to tell you guys a quick story as we start today. Um, this is one of those Sundays where I kind of, before we get back into what we were doing before Christmas, I kind of get to say whatever I want, whatever I feel like God puts on my heart. And so if you have your Bibles and you're familiar with your Bible, uh, would you turn to Jeremiah chapter 2? That's where we're going to be camping out. But I want to tell you a story that I heard a long, long time ago from a pastor that I look up to. Um, anyone ever heard of Francis Chan? Right. Francis Chan, he's like a fireball. We, we do his studies on Right Now Media. Uh, he's somebody that early in ministry really influenced me, not in the fact that he even knows I exist, but in the fact that I got to watch him on YouTube a whole bunch. And I remember this story that affected me. This is a story from like 2005, and I think even at that point it was old, and it's so old that he actually had hair when he was telling the story. But he told this story of a wedding that he did of an older lady who had been through a lot that was going to the church and got saved. And he was talking about her. In fact, her name was Jean in the story. And I remember it very specifically. I went back and listened to it again this week because it really impacted me. And I wanted to get it right. Uh, But this lady, Jean uh, Chan, was saying, even at that point, a long time ago, he was a very popular pastor who was doing all sorts of things all over the world. And he couldn't do a lot of weddings. He said, I kind of take on one wedding a year. And I just feel like whatever God says, then that's the wedding that I'll do. And then the rest of the pastors do the rest of them. Now, that's not how it is at New Life, uh, mainly because I'm not that big of a deal. But uh, That's how it worked in Simi Valley in California when he was pastoring at that point in his ministry. And so he says, there was this one wedding I did by a lady by the name of Jean. And Jean was like in her 60s, and she had lived a very hard life, and she came to Christ. And she just had trauma after trauma after trauma. And Jean was special to Chan, and uh, she finds someone who's also in his late 60s, and they both never thought they'd find love again. And it's just one of these beautiful love stories that puts the gospel on display where she says, man, I just can't believe it. They're going through marriage counseling process. She says, I just can't believe what, what God has done for me. And I thought that, you know, that season of my life had passed. And now we found each other. And I, and I went to him and I said to him, I said, you know, why, why are you even doing this? I, I don't even understand. I've got all of these wrinkles on my face. No offense if you're in that category. I'm sure she just didn't age well like you have. But she said, I've got all of these wrinkles on my face. And here's what this guy, who's just a total stud, said about his soon-to-be wife. He says, you know, when I look in your eyes, you can write this down if you're trying to find a spouse. He said, when I look into your eyes and I see your face, I don't see wrinkles, I see dimples. And she kind of melted at that, and, and she got emotional about that, and she knew that he was the one. But he, that's not really why the story's so cool. The reason the story is cool is then a few weeks later, they do the wedding, and she's a single mom with a daughter who's 28, but she has mental handicaps, and she's at a maturity level of about six years old. And so she's the flower girl in the wedding for Jean, who thought she would never be married. And as they're walking down the aisle and the wedding starts, her 28-year-old daughter, April, is sitting on the sidelines, and she's watching all of these things take place, and it's kind of a small a very intimate wedding, and so there's this time where they exchange vows, and they get to talk their vows out, and they don't just repeat after me type of stuff, and he takes the mic, and he surprises everybody, 
And he says, April, I have a surprise for you. I'm not just marrying your mother. I'm also adopting you, not literally, but metaphorically, into the family. I'm going to be a father to you as well. And so have you guys ever noticed something about people that have mental disabilities? They're some of the sweetest people on the planet. Like there's nothing better than serving or participating in any way in the Special Olympics. They're just a special people that God creates for for our communities of, of faith. And so he says, you know, it's also, it's not just your mom who's already crying at this point, and she doesn't know he's going to do this. I'm also, you know, a part of your family now. And so, April, I have a ring for you. And because she doesn't have social boundaries as a maturity age of six, she literally freaks out. This is how the story goes. I wasn't there. She freaks out. She leaves her flower girl post, and she runs up on stage, and in essence, he, you know, proposes to this girl with mental disabilities, and Chan says she completely loses it, and not only is she crying, and not only is her mother crying, and not only is her now kind of adopted father who's in his late 60s crying, but the entire sanctuary is an absolute array in weeping, and the pastor himself is crying. And then he makes this point, which I don't know if you're an emotional person or not, but I think that would get, how many of you would cry at that? All right, online, downtown, you cry at that. Okay, you have a soul. I don't, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but here's where he made the connection point. I've just never forgot this story. He said, that's the gospel. That's the perfect picture of the gospel where Jesus, in all of his greatness, God on his throne, thinks of us a person who has low status, really, in the kingdom of God. We're sinners separated from God, marginalized by every worldly standard. Apart from him, he actually adopts us into his family. He gives us that ring. And the beauty of the gospel in this story is, is exactly how it should play out when we actually receive Christ. Right? It's not like, oh, well, I guess I'll go through this religious ritual, and sometimes I'll go to church, and maybe I'll give a little money so that they can make budget, and maybe I'll be on a committee here or do that or serve in this capacity because, you know, I'm sure God could use my time because I'm really valuable. Here's the gospel on display. It's like this girl, April, where you could say, man, I can't believe that God on his throne knows my name, knows every hair on my head, sent his son to purchase me with his blood, and he actually wants a relationship with me. There's this humility in this story that that's what the gospel looks like. When you really get saved, when you really encounter Christ, you look like a naivety to your faith like April. And I've never forgotten that story. And so it's all about this idea that we're adopted into the family of God. In the New Testament, you hear Jesus say it repeatedly that we are the bride and he is the groom. And the groom's jealous for his bride, looks after his bride, dies for his bride, wants relationship with his bride. And there's this spiritual wedding, in a sense, that takes place. But here's what's unique, and sometimes I think people don't know this part. That's not just a New Testament metaphor. And what I want to show you today on our kind of free Sunday where we get to preach whatever we want around here is that that idea of a metaphor of a wedding being united with God the Father through his son Jesus Christ is actually something we see all the way back. All the way back, God is jealous for his people. In fact, the greatest commandment in the Old Testament that then transfers to the New Testament is this. Luke, uh, Jesus says it in Luke 10.27. He says, 
The greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's pulling some stuff from the Old Testament. It's this idea of what drives the gospel, what drives our faith, is not a bunch of have-tos to follow religious rules. That's every other religious system. What drives the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loves you. In the matter of the fact that you're not even worthy of it, he still loves you. And he sets the tone 600 years or so before Christ through its weeping prophet Jeremiah where you see the same metaphor of the bride and the groom. And so here's what Jeremiah says in the midst of a rebelling people. In fact, it doesn't go well in the storyline. It doesn't go well in the future. But all throughout the narrative of Scripture, people follow God, and then they get drifted away by the desires of their heart, and they go and they worship false idols. And then they repent of that because they realize their life stinks, and on and on and on the cycle goes. And maybe you can personally relate to that narrative. But God's having this moment with his people, and it's one of the most beautiful texts in the Old Testament. And you can look on the screen, or you can look in your own Bible or on your phone, and find out what it says looking at that. But look with me if you're not doing that. It says, the word of the Lord, chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, go and proclaim the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. He's talking about his people. God's people set apart. And he's going kind of reflecting way back. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land sown. And verse three says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. You get this picture of God as a protector. And he's doing this thing that, that some of us do. We start reflecting on the past. In fact, if you're going through some stuff in your marriage, one of the ways that you can kind of light that fire again is do the things that you first did in your relationship. I know one time, uh, Ann and I, although our relationship is perfect, um, I remember one time for our anniversary, we, we went to the Bible college where we first met. And uh, if you went to this Bible college, there's just nothing to do. You literally go to the gas station for your dates, and that's what we did. And I can remember all the chocolate milk and cheese sticks I ate at the gas station with her when I was wooing her with my affection and so I took her back one year, I think we were about 10 years in to this perfect marriage where we've never even argued, and, uh, <laughs> and if you know us, you know that's a joke, but uh, I remember taking her back, and I remember one of the things I did that we never really did again, and, and mostly because she didn't really want to, but we used to rollerblade together, and I remember, on our, like, I think it was our 10 year, we went back to Ellendale, North Dakota, and we rollerbladed again together, and it kind of like stirred those affections, and I remember we went to this baseball diamond where we used to sit and talk, and we, we went back to that baseball diamond, but this is the idea that sometimes there's this power, right? You ever get that thing, that not, not even a relationship that happens to you in your life where you get taken back to that moment, or the song comes on the radio, and all of a sudden it's the summer of 69, and you're living out that mullet dream world in the 80s again. Do you guys, have, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Right, this is what God's doing in this text. He's saying, man, I remember my bride from my youth. I was so protective of you. If anyone tried to hurt you, I would take them out. He says, disaster would come upon them. And in verse 5, he says this, thus says the Lord. And this is one of the most vulnerable texts in all of the Old Testament. And I think it's just rarely even preached. Thus says the Lord in verse 5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness 
and then became worthless themselves. I mean, God, in all of his perfection, obviously he's being facetious in his questioning, but he's saying, what did I do where you were, you know, starting out like this girl who had mental disabilities who, who finds the groom and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm so not worthy to be in your presence. Look at what you've done for me. Look at what you've provided for me. You've literally made me a new creation. I remember when your fathers had that type of passion. What did I do as the groom where you sold me out for false idols? What did I do to deserve that? And of course, the answer is nothing. He's saying, man, of all the things that hurt me in my relationship with you that I love so dearly, I don't know if there's a greater emotion than betrayal. In fact, a lot of us don't even know what that feels like. Some of us we've worked with at this church, you know that pain. Where you're thinking everything's going in at good in a core relationship. And then all of a sudden, things just turn. It just gets nasty. And all of a sudden, that core relationship that was so loving turns into hateful, vindictive disgust, even to a process of divorce. And God's saying, how did that happen in this relationship? Because it seemed like you guys figured it out, and then you fell away. And he makes this statement that I think is significant, even on a theological level. He says straight up in this text, I want to just read it to you again. They went far from me, and they went after worthlessness, and then they became worthless. It's this idea, why did you leave me? Why did you leave me? You chased after something, which was me, and then all of a sudden the shiny object came and your attention shifted and you started worshiping a false idol in your life. And here, here's the principle that I want to bring to light in this part of the text. That God has an economy, and in that economy, he describes worth and value. And that there's this intimate connection between what you chase and what you're worth. Not in an intrinsic sense, follow me on this thought. Because you have worth because you are created by God. So intrinsically, you have this value. But the fruit that you're producing is worthless because it's not rooted in the one that's truly worthy of your worship. That when you have these things in your life that aren't God and you start treating them in a godlike status, all of a sudden everything in your life that's producing fruit starts to die. And in a sense, there's this worthlessness that's becoming very real. And so it happened in the Old Testament over and over again. And it looks different for us, but really it's fundamentally the same. In the Old Testament, it was Baal. In the Old Testament, it was the God of rain, it was the God of fire, it was the God of shelter, it was the God of food. It was basically, they would worship these false gods, whoever would promise to provide to them because they're kind of on that level one hierarchy of needs. They're on that basic level where I don't know where my next meal's gonna come from, I don't know where my next shelter's gonna come from as I'm sitting in this desert. And so they are worshiping these false gods who promise these false things to provide for them in a very basic way. And in our life, we kind of have all of our basic needs met, and so we do the same thing, it just takes on a different face. In the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it was all about worshiping false idols that would produce something on a basic need level. And now 2,000 years later, as Americans who pretty much have everything, even in the midst of crisis, we still worship other things, but this is, what, this is kind of where I'm going, 2021. What we tend to worship is just self. We still have these false idols, these false gods in our life, and the evolution of our basic needs being met, we don't go to a Baal who produces rain 
anymore. We just go to, hey, how can I tune into loving myself more, taking more selfies of myself in my teenage years, finding all of my intrinsic value from what everyone else thinks of me in a virtual world, whatever that might look like, or maybe it's greed, or who knows, the sky's the limit as to what you can do to fill in the dots in that reality. We don't really have these gods of you know, rain, these gods of food, these gods of shelter, but we do have these gods that are living very close to us because it's our own God, and we can do whatever we want to do as long as we don't. Do you guys remember from last summer? I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as I don't hurt anyone. And so we're still worshiping false gods, and Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me no matter what, then I demand, look at me, I demand all of your affection, every last drop of it. I demand all of your affection. Here's how this story plays out. This is a beautiful metaphor. In verse 11, God says through Jeremiah, has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods, he says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You're worshiping these worthless idols. And so you've shifted your affection. Now check out verse 12. I love verse 12. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Here's why he's saying that. He's saying, you know if you're sitting in heaven as an angel, been worshiping me for, you know, since the beginning of time as I'm on my throne, you know how great I am. You know my provision. You know my providential hand. You know my majesty. You know my sovereignty. You know that I am. And you're watching now from heaven a people who have shifted their attention to something that can't produce, something that's utterly worthless, and you should be appalled. And so all of heaven is sitting around just kind of scratching their heads. He says in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me out of the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns from them, cisterns from themselves and broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, be appalled. It's this mental picture. Watch me when I do this, because maybe you've done this when you've seen dumb things in your own life or like on social media. It's this idea that you're watching a train wreck. Have you guys ever watched a train wreck publicly? I know that no one else has had a bad social media experience. but It's this idea that you're watching it, and you just kind of do one of these. This is what heaven's doing. Ready? It's just kind of like, right, just idiot. That's what heaven is doing when it's looking down and watching God's people who has had everything provided for them start to just disintegrate. He says, be appalled. And then he uses this analogy that I want to run with this morning of this idea of you're taking this living water, this perfect, purified water that's straight from myself. I am the living water. That's a New Testament revelation too, right? Jesus is the living water. He says, you're taking this living water, this spring water that's, that's swelling up around you, and you're instead changing paths and not taking that water, and you're instead going in a direction where you're going to drink out of a cistern. And it doesn't make sense unless you lived about 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. And so I want to break that down real quick. If you were in the desert, you were thirsty. Logical, right? No modern technology. If you were in the desert, you were thirsty. And so because these springs 
of water were few and far between. If you found a spring of water, you would rejoice. Everyone would have known what Jeremiah was talking about. If you found this living water, you would have been incredibly, incredibly happy. And he says, this is what it's like. You find this spring of fresh water, that's me. And then in your arrogance, you look away and you create this cistern. And so what a cistern was is because there was hardly any springs of water that were, that were creeping up in the desert, instead you'd have to pray to the good Lord for rain. And if God gave you rain, what you would do before the rain ever come is you would dig these holes or cisterns and you would either dig them into the ground or you dig them into rocks. And then when the water would fall, you'd have something to drink. Anyone ever drinking rainwater before? All right, it's not exactly web water. And so you had this polluted kind of half-quality water that would get you by, but you actually wouldn't thrive off of it, and you would drink out of this cistern, and God is saying, man, how dumb do you have to be to have this thing over here and then bypass it and go to something that's half-rate? He says, when you pick your false idols, when you choose to worship creation instead of creator, that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking a fool to everyone in heaven around you who's looking at how great I am and knowing that you're replacing me with something that can't produce. And here's how it concludes in verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, I said how I would set you among my sons, and I would give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous, or even another translation would say, unfaithful wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous or unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. He is letting his people know the pain that he's absorbing because of their unfaithfulness. You see this in the New Testament as Jesus is starting to go to the cross. He says this, he says in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you in my wings like a hen to its chicks, but instead, you turn your back on me. This idea of intimate betrayal from the heart of God. And, and here's what I, I just want to break down this cistern thing, and we're going to close together. But maybe you want to just fill this in or write this down. As we start 2021, fill this in. Broken cisterns that hold this water, that's rainwater, that's not the good stuff, Broken cisterns in my life leak slow, but they leak dry. That was the design when it was broken. Here, here's kind of the, the rest of the story to this text that it just described. It wasn't just that they took water that was lower quality and drank it. It was that they chose water that was lower quality that was from a broken vessel that actually was about to run dry, and they were watching this thing deplete. And the principle is very basic, and it's very relevant to our own lives. How many of you, you don't want to raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about because you've walked in addiction cycles? How many of you know that that thing, that shiny object, that addictive substance that you placed in your body, maybe it's a drug, maybe it's alcohol, it started producing, right? You, you traded in the glory of God, and you worshiped something else, and you put it on a throne, but it didn't always re reproduce at the same level, and so it had this leak in it, and every addict will tell you that their first high is better than their last. It gets worse and worse and worse, and that's kind of what God is talking about. He's saying it's not just that it's worse water. It's not just that you fell away from me. That thing that you chased after had no ability to produce, and now you're sitting in this valley of dry bones 
where you're in this desolate place, and my prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, is prophesying over your life, and he's saying, it's not just that you pick something worse, it's something that you pick that can't even reproduce in your life, and it's leading you to a path of fast and utter destruction. Those cisterns in my life that I've chosen that start with something in them, they leak slow, but they leak bone dry, and that's the grace of God in my life so that I can see that that's not something that I want to chase after. The second principle is this, and we're going to walk away with just three of them. There is no shortage of these cisterns. You guys ever notice that? There's this narrow path. This is what the Bible says, and it plays out in all of our lives. There's this narrow path that leads to everlasting life, and there's this broad path to what? To destruction. And it's like there's a hundred options whenever you want to worship something other than Jesus. There's one source of living water, and there's all sorts of roads that lead us into temptation that the Bible would even talk about in the book of James as luring us in. James 1, verse 13, maybe you've heard this text before. He's talking about temptations. He's talking about these cisterns, in a sense, that don't produce in our lives. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire conceives and gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so it's this idea of there's this one path that's the living water, and then just like in the desert, because there was hardly any living water, there's hardly any purified water that was springing up from the ground, there's like a thousand cisterns that everyone had dug that would come dry. That idea of a leaking cistern was not something that would have been rare. And every preacher that talks about this text always goes to fishing. It's like when you lure a fish in, and you know, you have to, you know, you have to set it up, and you have to deceive it, and I think, you know, that's something that probably would have rang true, and even in James' mind, because everyone was a fisherman around him, but the problem I have with that is it doesn't really play true to my life, because the things that lure me in are a little more complicated than that. I find fish to be rather dumb. I I don't know what their IQ is, but I would imagine it's incredibly low, and so I know some of us really love fishing, but I find it to be a bit dull because you kind of just drop. Are you guys going to get mad? I know we're South Dakota. You kind of just drop that thing in, and then it does its work. And I know that there's some type of fishing that's better than that, but a lot of times it's more about relaxing. I've never really been lured like that. I've been lured in a more sophisticated way where something looked really good, and the enemy or my own flesh just kind of draws me into these cisterns that look so shiny and look so great, but they have no real ability to produce. I was looking online this week about things that get lured in for affections with animals because I thought, man, fish, were just, they're just too dumb. And I came across the topic of cats. Who in here, I know I've talked about cats in the last month or two. This cat uh, is not only a sinner because it's a cat, but it's also a glutton, so it has multiple layers of (laughs) sin attached to it. And what I found about cat lovers is that they're just a little different, but they're very loving people, and they have this weird affection for their cat. Anyone a cat lover? You're like, you just called me weird. And and I was looking, I Googled this idea because I thought, man, fishing is too cliche to close out this message. But I was looking at how you lure a cat, and and one person said, there was like these five principles to getting your cat back if it runs away. 
And my principle would be, you know, just, well, see you later, right? But, but it, one person said, the way you get your cat back if they run away is you, you leave the garage door open with just a crack. Because cats come in on their own time, mostly in the middle of the night, and they don't like to be begged. Right? This person then went and saw their cat therapist uh, to get some help. This, this, this tip is actually from a cat named Romeo, and I'm assuming it was the owner who wanted to act like they were the cat. He says, put my favorite bed or blanket on the porch. I like its scent. You can lure me in with that. And it's, I thought of this idea of, you know, that's kind of what it's like in my life where all of a sudden I'm not in the Word of God and I'm not active in my prayer life and I start remembering things better than they were and I remember that little blankie of sin that was enticing me that I want to run back to. Someone else said, put bad smelling food outside and warm it up, fish, sardines, etc. Kitty cats love that. Someone else said, call them with your normal voice. This is the best one. I'm going to close this thing out, I swear, but I had to share this with you. He says, call them with your normal voice. Cats are turned off by your loud or shaky voice. Use your normal chit-chat voice. How many of you guys know that that relationship that that person has with that cat is just a bit odd? Right? (laughs) Don't use your big boy voice. The next person said, sleep on the floor. I take it back. This is the weird one. Sleep on the floor so you can hear the scratch at the door when they come home and be prepared for sleepless nights. Or you could just say, see you when I see you, right? (laughs) There are these things. Now translate that to the gospel. Take this cat analogy and just look at it through the lens of the heart of God in this text. This is what God is saying. He said, man, you have cat-like affection for me. I created you. He says, what did your fathers do? What did I do to your fathers? Did I not produce every promise that I ever gave them in their entire lives? Everything I said I would do, I did. Why does it feel like you're being lured off by all of these other things and I'm feeling like I have to beg you just to follow me with your hearts? I mean, you're just drifting off at every single direction. And the closing principle is this. This is why this text stuck out to me for 2021. The heart of God is this. Choosing bad water breaks the heart of God. The gospel is not about have to. The gospel is about I Get to follow Jesus. God's not looking for a bunch of rule followers with their prideful hearts to check things off a religious checklist. If you don't know, now you know. He rips the Pharisees. We in no way want to start off this year or in the last 15, almost 16 years in ministry now, being a church that's religious and not in love with Jesus. I want nothing to do with a church like that as a pastor. God is saying in the Old Testament, not just the New, that choosing this bad water breaks my heart. Following Jesus is a want-to scenario. One of the things that's really cool about the season that we're in and when people are watching in their online communities, and I've had people recently reach out to me and say, man, I just listen every week. I can't wait to get back in house. I have people that we see here every week, and we know that people are going downtown every week. We know that people in Rock Creek are still coming in, getting baptized. The gospel is still going forward. Here's what's so awesome. Of all the things that are horrible about COVID, here's what's so awesome, that no one is doing anything related to following and being a part of the family of God that's a have to because you have every reason possible to have nothing to do with the church right now and society is going to give you a golf clap and tell you that's okay. Everybody that's sitting in line online right now and making that 
sacrifice to worship with you in a virtual way are sitting in this place or downtown or in Rock Creek or in Peru. They're all saying, man, in a culture that says you don't have to do this anymore, I don't have to, I want to, and I want to choose the living water because Jesus is my groom. Jesus purchased me with his blood. Jesus rose from the dead so that I can have life. And it's not a have to, it's a get to, it's I want to. And that type of passion will absolutely revolutionize a culture that's lost. That's what it looks like when a church explodes with gospel power. And so as we start off this year, I just wanna ask you this question. Is that your relationship with Jesus? Maybe that addiction in your life has kept beating you up over and over and over again because you've been treating Jesus like a have to and you've been running to porn or whatever else it is in your life as a get to. Maybe the reason that you have these false idols that you've worshipped over and over again is because in your mind you haven't experienced Jesus as a living water and that cistern that's leaking feels way better to you than anything else you've ever experienced in Christ. And what I want to say as we close is Jesus grabbed my heart 20 years ago when I never looked back, and he was not a have to. He was a want to and a get to, and that saving faith will change everything. Jesus is vying for the affections of your heart. Do you worship him? Let's go to the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your word. As we enter into this next season of ministry with a new year, we know on the surface we have some of the same problems. We, we do see lights at the end of the tunnels, but we're smart enough at this point in life and in crisis to know that only you have all the answers. But we commit to follow you no matter what, no matter how good things are, no matter how bad things are. We commit to following you in this season and out of this season no matter what. And what we promised this morning as a church purchased in your blood is what we promised you as the groom is we promise you our affections. And if there's anyone in these spaces right now that's not following you as Savior, that's looking at you as a have to instead of a get to, and I pray that right now they would run to you like that six-year-old, emotionally six-year-old girl, April, 20 years ago, who ran to the groom. And just say, thank you, thank you, thank you for dying on a cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again so that I can have life. Thank you for grafting me into the family of God and to the people of God. I want to be a new creation in you. And I want to give you all of my affections. In fact, as I, if I leave this space, everyone's eyes closed. But if that's where you're at with the Lord and you're going, man, that is so true in my life, would you just look at me right now so I know who you are? Come talk to me after church. Let's sit down this week. Maybe we'll go to lunch or something like that. Let's talk about your faith and how Christ wants to radically change your heart. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the people that just looked at me people listening online, the people downtown. Change our affections. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, 